It's my privilege to introduce to you our speaker this morning. Uh, and typically, when you when you give an introduction for someone, you kind of list their list of professional and educational accomplishments to to kind of give a reason for why you should listen to them. Uh, and I can do that for for Dr. Soden. Um, he currently serves at LBC as a professor in the theology department, uh, teaching mostly uh, Old Testament classes. Uh, and he also serves there as the director of uh, the Master of Arts in Bible program. Uh, prior to that, uh, he earned his uh, Ph.D. emphasizing Semitics and Old Testament studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and between his tenure in school and at LBC, he served as a pastor in southwest Colorado for over nine years. Uh, but beyond that, uh, beyond his educational and professional accomplishments, uh, the reason that I would commend him to you this morning is uh, I was a student of his at LBC, and uh, one of the things that struck me was not only was he profoundly intelligent, uh, but he was also profoundly humble. And uh, that told me that not only is he a student of God's word, uh, God's word has changed him. Uh, it's not merely a textbook for him. Uh, so I gladly commend him to you this morning as someone you should listen to. John? Am I on? <clears throat> good. I kind of feel like I ought to probably not stand here. Is that good? Since I have that behind me. Is it okay if I stand down here a little bit? You guys are okay? Kind of outside of the spray zone, I think. <laughs> uh, I learned something in your bulletin today. Lancaster General wants you to use their new website to determine the condition of your heart. Did you notice that? I didn't know that. Did you realize some of our issues that we face are really hard to see? You knew that. I mean, how do you know if you have heart disease, right? I have a friend, some of you guys know them. Um, it's nice to see a few LBC faces here, that's good. Um, Dr. Harold Keim teaches over at the college with me, and about a dozen years ago, in fact, I think it was 13 or 14 years ago, he had a, just a normal checkup. He was supposed to go to the doctor, and the doctor at the end of his checkup said, you look fine, but do you have any questions? And Harold said, well, uh, every time I chop wood, I have a little bit of lower back pain. He said, do you think you have any idea what that could be? And he checked him out some more, sent him to the hospital. They put him immediately into a room and they did emergency surgery because he had blockages in his heart. He, had, he was not overweight. He had no other signs. And yet they said, you are in immediate danger of heart attack. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you can't see. And to be honest, I think the same thing is often true in our spiritual condition. When we talk about our spiritual hearts, and I'd like to look at a guy from the Old Testament, of course, this morning, and I'd like to think a little bit about spiritual heart disease, because some of us are probably suffering from it, and we may or may not realize it. Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to 2 Chronicles chapters 10 through 12. I'm not going to read it all to you. But we are going to talk about a guy by the name of Rehoboam, which you may or may not have heard of. He was the son of Solomon, and he had everything going for him. But he didn't do everything really well. What we discover with Rehoboam, though, is what we discover in all of our lives, and that is that God provides opportunities 
to expose our health. He provides testing. And some of you have been to the doctor, and some of you have been through some of that testing, maybe you've been through a stress test, and you know that those things are designed to try to show the internal issues that you can't see. We all face stress tests that God gives us. And some of those are of all different kinds, actually. We're going to talk a little bit about some of those things. But God provided that for Rehoboam, and what we need to realize is that we have to listen to our doctor's evaluation. Sometimes we're not very good at that, are we? Sometimes we don't really want to pay attention. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you, that you have given to us your word for us. Lord, sometimes it's difficult to recognize the things that you're doing in our lives. Sometimes we take it as just trouble. But Lord, help us to allow you to work through all of those things to make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray that you would teach us and encourage us this morning and challenge us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 10, let me just uh, give you a little bit of background, tell you the story a little bit rather than read it all to you. Because you remember Solomon and he was such a great guy and he was supposed to be the wisest guy in the world. And you kind of wonder about that a little bit sometimes when you think about, oh, 700 mothers-in-law. You know, what was wrong with him? 700 wives, 300 concubines, that's a real problem. And in fact, it was those wives that led him away from the Lord. And when he turned away from the Lord into idolatry, God judged him and he tore the kingdom into two pieces. Now, he didn't do it immediately, but he told Solomon that he would do it after his lifetime. And so when he died, his son Rehoboam is up for king and he shows up at Shechem and he's going to have everybody making king. And all the people come to him and they say, Rehoboam, you know what? Your dad was really good in a lot of things, but man, was he tough. And we are just absolutely at wit's end. We need some relief. We've had such hard taxes. We've had such hard burdens. We need relief. And Jeroboam says, well, give me a little while to think about it, and I'll tell you what I'll do. So come back in three days. So he talks to the old guys, the old counselors for his dad, and they say, they're right, give him relief. He talks to the young guys, his friends, and they say, look, you've got to show you're a man. You've got to show you're really king. So tell them you're going to be really hard on them and show them that you're going to be really, you're really going to be good. So when they come back, he makes a foolish choice. And he tells them that he's going to be even harder than his dad because he wants to be a good king. He wants to be tough. He wants to be in charge. And you know how it is. You know, if you're a new teacher, you've got to be tough the first whatever it is. And then you can lighten up later, right? So he's trying to be good. It didn't work. They all abandoned him. So he ends up with just two tribes. Uh, Benjamin and Judah stay with him, and the rest of them split. And he tries, he's going to try to get them back. So he goes home and he raises an army. And a man of God comes to him in chapter 11, verse 4. Second Chronicles chapter 11. And by the way, if you have a pew Bible, if you're looking at that, I think the bulletin says it's in 434, page 435, 4, so you can find that. So somewhere in that neighborhood anyway. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. Now, confusion, right? Jeroboam's the guy who took over the northern ten tribes. Rehoboam's the guy in the south. The names are not exactly real familiar, like Tom, Dick, and Harry, right? So 
Jeroboam, Rehoboam, two different kings. Rehoboam is the guy we're thinking about. And they said, you know what? God said not to go, so we're going to stay here. We're going to hang out. And God said, you got your kingdom. You got two tribes. That's it. He honored God. Now, that is, I would say, perhaps his first test. It's the test of normal living. Only that test doesn't exactly end here. Normal living is in bad things are happening. Have you ever noticed that? There's always something stressful going on, it seems like. Something just isn't working. If you own a house, something goes wrong. If you have a job, something happens. There's always stress. If you have people in your life, there's stress in your life, right? As much as you love those people, there's always stress. Well, for Rehoboam, he says, you know what? God said this. I'm going to obey him. And he does really well for a while. For three years. In fact, if you skip on down to verse 16, Jeroboam, the guy who took over the northern ten tribes, he did not do so good. He immediately decides to take his nation away from God in spite of God's promises to him. He sets up idols, some golden calves. And so those, in verse 16, those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and for three years they made Rehoboam, son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Three years. All these people from the northern kingdom that really loved God, that really wanted to follow him, that really wanted to pursue him, they said, hey, It's not happening here. We're going to go south. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to go to a place where we can worship the Lord, where we can follow him. And they did good. And and Rehoboam did well. For three years, he did really well. He follows the Lord. Have you ever been um, lulled into complacency? When I was 18, my dad had given me a car. Uh, Actually, he towed it into the driveway And he said, if you can make it run, you can have it. (laughs) It was, um, at the time, it was 15 years old. It was a Volkswagen Bug. It would be worth money if I still had it now. It wasn't then. (laughs) The engine was in the back seat in a couple of baskets. And I knew very little about cars. But fortunately, I had a brother-in-law who was a mechanic, more or less. Actually, he was a pastor who grew up in a mechanic's home. But... So he came over, we put it all together, made that thing run, and that was, oh, I love the car. You know, I redid the whole interior of it, I polished it up, it was really great, it was chartreuse green, loved it. I'm on my way to work, and I'm, you know, a young man, 18 years old, I'm having a great time, I'm, I'm on my way to work, and just as I top the hill, I'm looking down, and this is, this is an old car, right? So the radio, you remember those push-button kind of radios? Some of you old people do, like me, right? Um, you push the button to try to get it to the new station and it had mechanical things in there and it wasn't working. I couldn't get the station right. And I'm looking down trying to tune the station. I look back up and some guy had the nerve to stop right in front of me. I stopped too, about halfway into his trunk. <clears throat> I was complacent because I thought, you know, every, I, I was under control. Everything was good. And all of a sudden life happened. And I realized that I was not doing what I should have been doing. And it caught me up short and reminded me that sometimes we think things are going well and life is going the way we ought to and we realize all of a sudden when something happens that it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. It's easy to become complacent 
under normal conditions, in normal living. Um, what do you do? How do you feel when life is going well? Now, I'm thinking spiritually, not just you know, driving my car down the road, but thinking spiritually. When things seem under control, how's your relationship with God? Have you ever noticed, and, and I don't know, hopefully this isn't just me, but probably it is, when there isn't trouble, I don't spend near as much time on my knees. When I don't feel immediate need, I don't recognize the need as desperately, and I don't spend as much time seeking Him. Well, notice what Jeroboam does, or Rehoboam does, sorry. Okay, for three years, they're doing really well. They're walking in the ways of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 12. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong. Now, stop for just a moment. Realize what's going on. Rehoboam has been given the kingdom by God. He's got only two tribes, understood. But he's fortified his cities. He's had kids. He's gotten married. He's got people flooding into his kingdom. His church is growing. I mean, his kingdom is growing. Now, things are good. It's strong. He's feeling like life is okay again. What does he do? He abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Now, what it doesn't say here is he went into idolatry and he led Israel in idolatry and all those sorts of things. It says he abandoned the law of the Lord. He just sort of backed off. Now, the reality is, if we look over at the book of Kings, what we realize is that there was idolatry going on. What's interesting in Kings, however, is it doesn't say Rehoboam led them all into idolatry. It simply says all of the people began sacrificing to and the list the gods of the Canaanites and so on on every high hill and under every green tree. They're worshiping like Canaanites. What is Rehoboam doing? Well, he's probably doing some of that, but I think the main point is here, he's not stopping it. He has simply backed off. See, he's the king. He's the one who's supposed to enforce the law. He's the one who's supposed to say, this is where we're going. But he abandons it. He just neglects it. And when people start going off into evil and sin, he lets them go. And he probably begins wandering with them. <clears throat> and so what does God do? Verse 2. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and people without number, and it lists them all. <clears throat> verse, verse 5. Then the Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, they have humbled themselves and I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him that they may know my service in the service of the kingdoms of the countries. God is using a special discipline. He takes a pagan king and he brings him into to Israel to bring pressure to Rehoboam and to his people in order to help them understand their need to come back to him, to show them they've abandoned him. Now, I want you to think theologically with me for just a minute, okay? 
When God established Israel as his kingdom, he said, you are my people, I am your God, but more than that, I am your king. Yahweh was Israel's king. Now that's fairly significant because they were unique among all of the other nations. When Israel got into trouble later on, hundreds of years later, they asked for a king and it was Samuel's turn and Samuel says, that's not a good idea and God said, they're abandoning me. They, they haven't, they haven't uh, rejected you, they've rejected me. But God gave them a king and then he tells them, he says, just because I'm giving you a king doesn't mean I'm abandoning being king. I'm still your king. You still have to follow me. You still have to fear me. If you turn away from me, you and your king will be destroyed. And the king was intended to represent God and to show God to the people to, and to lead the people to God. And David did that really well. He, builds, he wants to build a temple. He can't. Solomon does build a temple. He brings the ark. David brings the ark to Jerusalem. Solomon builds, Solomon builds the temple and leads the people in real worship of God. And they follow him. Rehoboam now has abandoned him. Now, if he has abandoned Yahweh's law, he is no longer submitting to God as king. And what God says to him is, you know what? If you don't want me to be your king, I'm going to show you what it's like to serve a pagan king, to serve a tyrant. And so he brings the king of Egypt in to oppress them and say, this is what it's really like to serve idols. Because that's what an idol is. If you put anything in God's place, you're bowing down to that instead of God. And that becomes the authority in your life. And God brings a, a very tangible illustration, a very human illustration of, of subjection to show them what it's like when they abandon Yahweh as their king, their God. <clears throat> he brings special discipline to show them their need for him, and they respond well. They respond well, they humble themselves, and they turn back to God. But you know what God does? He leaves that testing he doesn't just take Shishak away. He doesn't say, okay, well, you've learned your lesson. That's, that's it. Good for you. Hooray. He says, you know what? When everything seemed really common and, and, and normal and was going good for you, you abandoned me. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave Shishak here. You're going to have just this little thorn in the side to keep reminding you of what you need to do, that you need to follow me. And so Shishak stays there. So that, he says, <clears throat> verse 8 again, they shall be servants to him so that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Do they understand what it's like to serve me? Do they understand what it's like to get away from me and lose out? There's often consequences to our either sin or just foolish choices, right? Uh, an 18-year-old having an accident when I rear-ended somebody has consequences. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but uh, my insurance rates went for about three years, and I was paying for my insurance, so I felt it very deeply. As I went off to college, in my first few years of college, I'm trying to make it through college, and here I've got sky-high insurance rates. Boy, was I glad when three years were up and my insurance rates started to come back down again. That was a constant reminder that I had to pay attention. I couldn't just lollygag when I'm driving. For, she, for Rehoboam, Shishak is a constant reminder for my friend, Harold. He's got constant reminders too, right? It's his diet, poor guy. For years, you know, he'd be coming to, to work with his salad and he'd have to eat his salad and we're all, you know, eating other things. 
And when we'd go out, it was kind of funny, actually, because we'd often, as a department, we'd go to a convention called the Evangelical Theological Society, and we'd go out to eat together while we're out there. <clears throat> and so somebody would always remind him, say, Harold, whatever you eat, I'm going to tell Beth. <clears throat> so you've got to be careful, right? There's reminders. But God leaves us reminders, too, sometimes, doesn't he? Reminders that we need him. We need to follow him. We need to pursue him with a whole heart. Um, Sometimes he leaves just irritations in our life. Things to remind us that we need him. Have you ever been to that point in your life when you really recognized you were totally dependent on him? You really needed God? If it wasn't for him, you'd have nothing. Have you ever been to that point of total desperation for him? Probably some of you have. Have you noticed that feeling of of total reckless abandon, total desperation, total need of God isn't always there? You see, I've been there more than once and realized that there's times that that feeling fades. And as much as I realized I need him, and as much as I know it theologically, as much as I know it in my head, as much as I even know it here, you know, life just keeps going. And sort of it fades, and I just kind of can easily slip back into a little bit of complacency. Uh, maybe, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But I think uh, God really wants to teach us some very important lessons. And I would like to just think a little bit about what is it that God is trying to teach? If you would, uh, turn back with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, just before 2 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. I'm not going to read all of this, but David, at the beginning of chapter 28, he assembles... all of Israel, and he is telling them to help Solomon build the temple that God needs to be front and center. He needs to be center stage. And he says, and I'm going to just skip on down past the first part, down to verse 6. He said to me, It's Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son and I'll be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong and keeping my commands and my rules as he is today. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. What is God offering Israel? Well, he's offering them his presence. He's offering them tangible benefits for the nation of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. When he talked to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, back in Exodus as well, he said, if you will obey me, I will bless you. I'll bless the socks off you. You'll be so wealthy. You'll have all this stuff. And you will be the head and not the tail. You'll be healthy, everything. Sounds like the uh, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers almost. Actually, that's where they get it. It was for the nation of Israel, if they would follow him. It was under the Mosaic Covenant. Now, that doesn't mean every individual, but it means the nation as a whole would be doing really well. However, he says, if you turn away from me in disobedience, I'm going to judge you, 
And I'm going to bring diseases on you. I'm going to bring famine on you. I'm going to bring enemies against you. And life is going to be rough because you need to learn what it means to follow me. And so when he turns to Solomon, when David turns to Solomon, he says, this is the promise. This is what I will do for you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. God offers blessing for following him. Now, I am not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. I believe that was for Israel. I am, however, fully convinced that God will bless all who follow him. Not necessarily with tangible blessings. The promises we have in Jesus in the New Covenant are not that you'll be healthy and wealthy, but they are that you'll have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has promised us both blessing now in terms of my relationship with God, which is the ultimate blessing. He is my good. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, all those things, right? And eternity with Him. The neat thing about the job that I have, I get to not only teach God's Word, but I've got a retirement that's out of this world. And you can share it with me, right? God has incredible blessing for us if we will follow him. But we lose when we don't. The trouble is, we don't always see those things right away and we don't always see them as tangibly. And so sometimes we get lured into this complacency of thinking, well, it really doesn't matter. It's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Sometimes we get so distracted. See, God is trying to teach us the reality, the reality of knowing Him, the reality of real blessing, that if we will pursue Him, we have great opportunity in relationship with Him. If we will pursue Him, we have an eternal hope. If we will pursue Him, but it's so easy to get distracted by the immediate, isn't it? It's so easy. Uh, Rehoboam is so distracted. Shishak, king of Egypt, comes against him. He does exactly what God says he would do. He takes the stuff, but he leaves them alive. And it says in verse 12, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. In other words, he didn't totally destroy the nation of Judah. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. Life was good. It returned to normal. Things seemed okay. The king of Egypt let them be. Uh, he was still in control, but they probably had, still had to send some tribute now and then. But yeah, life was good. So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. However, I want you to look at verse 14. Interesting evaluation in the way, I guess you could say, this is his epitaph. Rehoboam, he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now, maybe you've noticed, at the beginning of his reign for three years, all the people who had set their hearts to seek the Lord came down south, and for three years they did really well pursuing God. We look back at David's words to Solomon. He says, if you will seek the Lord, he will be found by you. Rehoboam? He did for three years. 
And for the rest of his reign, 14 more years, he didn't have a long one, he let it slide. He neglected it. He abandoned the law, not because he necessarily went out and led everybody in idolatry. He just let them all go into idolatry. Did he do it too? Probably. But it was more an attrition than it was an active seeking of anything else. It was that he just neglected God. One of these days, we're all going to stand before God. You know what? It's easy to be distracted. It is so easy. I, I, I get distracted. I don't think I have ADD. But sometimes I'm in class and I notice what a student's doing. And all of a sudden I forgot what I was supposed to be saying. Wait a minute. Where am I? Oh, yeah. We're in life. And things distract us. Imagine, if you will, okay, <clears throat> standing before we, just before we moved here. Um, we were in the most amazing part of the world, southwest Colorado. Just incredible. Now, I know you guys appreciate Pennsylvania, and I appreciate it too. I really do. Um, southwest Colorado is different. Well, we went to visit the Grand Canyon. I took the family there. We spent a few nights camping there on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we decided to go see the sunrise. So imagine, if you will, standing on the lip of the Grand Canyon waiting for the sun to come up. And what do you see? Well, this little mosquito just starts buzzing around. And you can't get it. You can't see it. Where is it? Where is it? You know, and you get distracted by the silly mosquito. And what do you miss? You miss what you came for. You miss the sunrise. Do you ever get that way in life? Do you ever get distracted by stuff in life? And you forget what's really important. It's really easy to get busy. One of the things God told the kings, one of the, in fact, one of the few things they had to do in Deuteronomy 17, for every king, when they, when they had kings, every king was supposed to write out the law of the Lord. That was the first thing he had to do. That was his homework assignment. And every day he had to have devotions. God wanted him to maintain contact with who he was, to know him. Um, I have a feeling Rehoboam got distracted. And I bet you his daily devotions wasn't there. How are you doing? How distracted are you right now from what's really important? What is it that's distracting you? Is it a job? Is it family? Is it financial issues? Is it health? Is it somebody else's health? What is it? What is it that distracts us, that distracts me from wholeheartedly seeking God, setting my heart to seek God alone. I have to choose. I have to choose what's important. I have to look at it and say, what is really of value to me? What is my core values? What is it that I would do no matter what? If I were to say, here's a $20 bill, if you come get it, you got it, probably few of you would come get it, in spite of the fact that everybody would be watching you, right? There'd be a few. Now, if I said, here's a $20 bill and you can have it if you start at that end and you walk across this, this beam right here. That's six inches wide, no problem. Still, a bunch of you do it, no problem. What if I take that beam and I make it about three times that long and then I raise it about 20 feet up in the air? How many of you would go for it? 
What if I put it between two skyscrapers? You see, what is it that I will do, not for a $20 bill, for Jesus? Am I willing to take time? Am I pursuing him with a whole heart? Is he a core value for me? God is going to judge our hearts. So what does he want? What does he want from you? What does he want from me? He wants the same thing he wanted from Rehoboam. He wants us to give him our exclusive loyalty. Is he my king? Yes! Does it show in my decisions? Does it show in my pursuits? Does it show in the time that I spend? Does it show in the things that I do? Does it show in how I spend my money? Does it show in where I go? Does it show in what I look at? How do I see my loyalty to God? How does it show that I am seeking Him? I've, I've established, I've set my heart to seek Him fully. How does that show? Or maybe I should put it another way. How's God going to see it? We need to pay attention to the stress test because sometimes I don't recognize the fact that I've strayed off course, right? I need to pay attention to the things that God brings into my life. Those, those things that remind me to say, yes, Lord, you are number one and I will pursue you. Because it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to let the normal, everyday life move me from wholehearted devotion to God. Someday, you and I, we are all going to stand for Jesus. Right? When I leave this world, when I was, in, when I was a senior in high school, my high school literature teacher challenged us. She said, okay, I want you all to write out your epitaphs. I had a hard time with that. I wasn't mature enough to know what I ought to say, and I had no idea what I wanted to say. What do I want? What's an epitaph for, anyway? But it summarizes your life, doesn't it? And if you look at Rehoboam, what does God say about him? These are really chilling words. He did evil. Why? For he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now, how do I prevent it? Well, uh, my cat would say this. How do I prevent heart disease? Eat and sleep, eat and sleep, eat and sleep, eat and sleep, right? And go outside a few times and eat and sleep and eat and sleep. I like my cat. I don't want to live like her. Well, sometimes I want to. But no, I shouldn't want to live like her. Okay. How do I prevent it? Well, I have to see God's ultimate good and I have to choose it. I have to realize what God holds out and say, is that really my core values? God's eternal blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, his life. I have to recognize that I am bound, therefore, to seek God with, with full allegiance. Do I have exclusive loyalty? Am I completely worshiping him? I have to see my heart. I have to be willing to look and say, okay, God's exposing certain things. And the things in my life expose my heart, right? The, the way I react. What makes me mad? What makes me depressed? What makes me happy? What happens when pressure's on? Where's my heart? 
And then ask God for help. At the end of Psalm 139, Psalm uh, David is crying out to God and he recognizes God knows everything. And I think honestly, to be honest, uh, as I look at the beginning of that psalm, he, he says, you know everything I say, you know everywhere I am, I can't get away from you. I kind of think he's a little bit terrified by that. But then he realizes that all of God's attentions towards him is good. It's good. And he returns and he asserts his loyalty before God and then he says, okay, Lord, search my heart and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I need that. You see, I need God to show me my heart because I'm not very good at seeing myself. But then I also need God to lead me in the everlasting way because I'm not very good at following either. I need him. I desperately need him. Both to evaluate and expose me and to lead me and empower me. And that's why God has given us his spirit. So I can commit then to craziness, to radical obedience, to putting God first. That's not our world, is it? The the people in this world don't understand that. Oh, they can understand being religious. There's lots of religious people. But if you are fully devoted, you're going to be a radical Right? And a radical Christian the world looks at just about the same as he looks at a radical jihadist. Isn't that true? If I were God, if if God were to write my epitaph right now then, what would he say? Would he say, John Soden set his heart to seek the Lord or John Soden did evil? because he didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. What is different in my life because of my relationship with God? What is it that demonstrates in my life today that I put him first? My time? My money? How I speak? what I look at, the way I treat my wife, my husband, my kids, my parents, my grandparents, my friends, my co-workers, my boss. What shows God is number one, that Jesus has my life and that I want desperately his blessing, not just an easy life. Well, maybe God's speaking to us. He wants all of us, doesn't he? If life were the stock market, he doesn't just want shares of my life. He wants controlling interest. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving to us your evaluations. Thank you that even though we don't always understand, we know that you are God and you are good. And Father, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of the testings that you bring to us, I pray that you would expose our hearts. Help us to see your evaluation of us. And Father, help us to cling to you. 
Help us to seek you with all that we have and to allow you to do your work in our lives to make us into the men and women you want us to be so that someday when we stand before you, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because God, you are all. And you have given to us all. And even as the sign out says, outside says, you deserve our all. Because of Jesus, because of what you've done for us, and the privilege we have to stand before you. Amen.